0: Today's reading is Romans chapter 9. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying, as confirmed by my conscience in the Holy Spirit. I have deep sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my own flesh and blood, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory and the covenants. There's the giving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. There's are the patriarchs, and from them proceeds the human descent of Christ, who is God over all, forever worthy of praise. Amen. It is not as though God's word has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are Abraham's descendants are they all his children. On the contrary, through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned, So it is not the children of the flesh who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as offspring. For this is what the promise stated, at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived by one man, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's plan of election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. So it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, Then why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make from the same lump of clay one vessel for special occasions and another for common use? What if God, intending to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the vessels of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the vessels of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, including us, whom he has called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my beloved who is not my beloved. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth, thoroughly and decisively. It is just as Isaiah foretold. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have resembled Gomorrah. What then will we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because their pursuit was not by faith. But as if it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. See, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. This is God's word. For a letter written to the church at Rome, the book of Romans has a lot of Jewish themes in it. The chapters we've already read talked about the Jews and Gentiles explicitly, as well as discussing the law of Moses repeatedly. Scholars have wondered why there's so much about Judaism and the Jewish people in this letter. Some have speculated that the church at Rome was actually a divided church, a Jewish congregation, and a Gentile congregation. Perhaps moving the church toward unity was one of Paul's goals in writing the letter. Maybe he was laying a foundation for attempting unification when he came to Rome in person. What is clear is that chapters 9-11 through of Romans will address the unbelief of the nation of Israel as a whole. Today's reading obviously began that discussion. However, Paul came to the discussion about Israel indirectly here in chapter 9. His true intent was to talk about election. Israel, in this chapter at least, was brought up as an object lesson in the doctrine of election. In verses 1 through 5, Paul discussed the many spiritual privileges that Israel as a nation had. Despite those privileges, they did not receive their Christ when he came, which gave Paul great sorrow and anguish, according to verses 1 and 2. The problem of Israel's unbelief, however, was not a failure of God's word, according to verse 6. Rather, their unbelief was the result of God's direct merciful choice in election, according to verses 15 through 18. In verses 7 through 13, Paul demonstrated that Israel's own history showed that God worked through election. Only Isaac was chosen between Abraham's two sons, according to verses 7 through 9. And then only Jacob, and not Esau, was chosen, according to verses 10 through 13. From a human perspective, divine election feels unjust, Paul anticipated the objection of injustice in verse 14, and he answered it by telling us that we're looking at it the wrong way. It is just for God to punish us all. If he chooses to have mercy on some, that is his right as the Creator, according to verses 15-18. through If the president pardons a convicted murderer, he has not been unjust to every other murderer. He's been merciful to one. The Constitution gives him that right, and he can exercise it as often or as rarely as he wants by whatever criteria he chooses. In a much greater way, God, the one who created us all, and the one against whom all of our sins were committed, has the same absolute right to save everybody or nobody or some number of people in between all or none. The reason we have a problem with the election is not because it is unjust, Rather, we have an authority problem, according to verses 20 through 23. The doctrine of election strains our human limits and tempts us to think that we know better than God does. But his ways are wiser than ours, and his will is beyond our comprehension. Like everything else in the Christian life, we have to humble ourselves and just trust God when it comes to election. One thing that is often overlooked when discussing election is that without election, nobody would be saved. See, we think the opposite. We think that if salvation were available to anyone and everyone, then most people would get saved. But we forget that salvation requires a miraculous spiritual act. The act of opening blind eyes, spiritually speaking, turning hard hearts, spiritually speaking, humbling our pride and causing us to come to God in repentance. Those are unnatural for human beings. Impossible, actually, for sinners. Election exists, in part, so that Christ's death and resurrection were not in vain. Before Christ came and died, God determined that his death would matter by choosing people and predetermining that Christ's death would be applied to them. Election shows us that God is more gracious than you realize making certain to save some according to his mercy. So I hope this causes your heart to feel gratitude for his grace in your life and to feel humbled that he chose you, not because of anything you've done, but just because he chose to love you. That's what the doctrine of election teaches. We'll see you next time.